0: Trader, a podcast where we trade ideas on race by way of discussing film. I'm your host,
1: Boston. And I'm Jay. This episode, we'll be discussing Tales from the Hood, directed by Rusty Kundef in 1995. Spoilers ahead. If you haven't seen Tales from the Hood, pause this episode and watch it. Next episode, we'll be covering The Best Man and The Best Man Holiday, written and directed by Malcolm D. Lee. You can
0: drop us a line at bostonnj at racetraderpodcast.com. Check the spelling in the show notes. And make sure you subscribe and give us five stars at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: All right. And again, we are joined by fellow podcasters Mark and Chad from Scary Thoughts. Say hello, guys. Hey. Hello. Thanks for having us. They were gracious enough to invite us on their podcast doing an episode of Us. I'm very proud of it. And I would like to say that Scary Thoughts, was one of my personal big motivations in terms of how to uh, frame Race Trader. And um, I even took a class uh, run by Mark, who suggested the tools and mics that we use here to create ours. We're pleased to have you guys. Thank you, Scary Thoughts. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, so Tales from the Hood. Was it you, Boston, who recommended it? I
0: recommended it, and I can't wait to get Mark and Chad's take (laughs) on it.
1: Yeah, so we'll go alphabetical
2: order chad what were your thoughts well okay so i am an enormous fan of tales from the crypt and all of the british movies that are sort of like horror anthologies framed by like a crypt keeper type character like i just love that shit and i saw this in the theater when it came out and really enjoyed it and i'm from louisiana so the the david duke character thing was hilarious to me in it because he had just finished up being uh, i think one of the congressmen at the time which is super fucked up and mm-hmm. you know like demon knight had just come out a year before this so people were still pretty stoked on tales from the crypt i mean i have a Keeper doll i have a full collection of like hard bound comics you know from the original 50s comics uh so this is my jam and i also really liked a lot of the uh like social black comedy at the time. So this was something I, I, had, you know, as a teenager enjoyed and, uh, having revisited it, I, I found a lot to like about it, but it's
1: also fucking
2: whack <laughs> in a lot of ways.
1: <laughs> yeah. I was, I was surprised by what it was. It wasn't exactly what I, uh, anticipated either.
3: Yeah, I had no prior relation to this movie anthology movies. Um, I sort of missed them when I was a kid, so I have no attachment to it as a as a format. I thought it was okay, and then I rewatched it and liked it a lot more, which is not usually what happens with me. I think there's a lot in it that is really strong, and um, a lot of missed opportunities throughout it, and and the series in general. I watched part two, which I. I'm sure we're not supposed to necessarily talk about, but it is a a pretty natural extension of it. Um, But the concept is really interesting and it definitely got me thinking about a lot of really interesting
1: things. Yeah. So Boston, you're really excited about this one. What, uh, how did it live up to your expectations?
0: So I'm going to preface this by saying that I was traveling from Boston to New Jersey, visiting my mom and on the way back, I listened to a podcast where Candace Owens was being interviewed. And if everybody, I hope I don't I most people know who Candace Owens is the the right wing black provocateur. She got grifter of the year. <laughs> um, I'm not at all surprised by that. <laughs> um, and then I went home and I watched this movie again, because I saw this movie as a teenager, as almost a horror film outside of it. I was thinking I was 14 when I saw it. and. I kind of understood some of the the points that the director was trying to make. And the tricky thing with this was Candace Owens, when they asked her what was wrong with the black community, she had said stuff like welfare and fathers not being in the home and all these other things. So I see this movie and I'm like, is this a, a recitation of what Candace Owens was talking about? Is this movie like... Politics of respectability in some ways on steroids is just like like because it addresses race in the David Duke way, but not really structural race. And it almost asks black people to be responsible for their own behaviors, which I'm fine with. But in the context of this scary film, right, it doesn't outline the broader context of what's happening or what was influencing those behaviors. I thought the movie was a little, it was a good movie, but it was a little bit of Bill Cosby's pound cake speech.
1: Do you know what I mean? I don't think we were discussing the complexities of institutionalized racism as much as we are, like Mm -hmm. especially right now to the degree in the nineties. I think like this movie, which I did enjoy as well suffers from that 90s heavy-handedness.
3: Mm, I agree. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, yes, yes, yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> like, like it was really just kind of amping up the kind of shtick from the 80s, but, you know, you replace the wood paneling walls with, like, glass coffee tables. I don't know if that makes sense <laughs> to you guys, but um, there's just some, like, some schlockiness to the whole aesthetic this movie though is it's kind of on par with the rest of its time like I, I thought of like well what other movies came out in 95 that were horror so demon knight which is like the obvious kind of flip side of this um you had the one of the worst halloweens curse of uh, number six curse of mike myers you had one of the worst john carpenter movies village of the damned but you also had actually haven't seen it but in terms of black movies Vampire in Brooklyn and Candyman also came out this year. <laughs>
2: Both are great. Vampire in Brooklyn, like the preacher scene in Vampire in Brooklyn is fucking amazing.
0: I remember seeing Vampire in Brooklyn in the movies and, and really enjoying it. And Candyman is, to this day, to me, one of the scariest movies. And really looking
3: forward to the uh, the remake that should have been out by now were it not for quarantine.
1: Right. But yeah, I just think in terms of messaging, I think it's intent was pretty strong. And, you know, it's weird because, like, it's very itemized. And so the only one that really addresses institutionalized racism on a very super, not even superficial, but just obvious level is the, you know, the KKK comeuppance piece. You know, I probably don't know uh, Tales from the Crypt as well as you, Chad, but like Tales from the Crypt has never been that sophisticated, so I feel like it makes sense that this wasn't either. But it was really good. Well, I'm, like, I'm, I'd, the Crypt I'd, I'd have to push really back good. on
2: Tales from the Crypt. Tales from the Crypt, I think, was like like this movie like is doing a different thing. Like if you watch the old Tales from the Crypt HBO shows, they are so close to the comics. It's it to me, it's almost a little bit more like doing something like Mad Men. Uh, Tales from the Crypt was a little bit, although there was a lot of like schlocky elements to it because it was just so silly. And I think this movie picks up some of that, and like you really feel the horror anthology weirdness in the uh, the last one with the gang member in like the the laboratory. It's like straight out of Young Frankenstein. Like, why, why, why make that weird choice? <laughs> you know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess I mean I guess I don't have to push back. I don't mean to push back so hard on the Tales from the Crypt thing. I'm just defensive about it. <laughs> I fucking love it. Uh, the other thing, I think there were no like crypto racists at this time. They were out in the open. Like David Duke walked around LSU campus in a Nazi uniform and then was in the Congress. Like this is like Rodney King times when like all the extra racist people from the 50s were in charge and had raised the worst generation of cops you know, like right at the same time, like the whole thing with the 7-5 precinct in Brooklyn is happening. It's just the heaviest level of like police corruption. I think maybe even amongst like the worst of the crack years, not like just there, it was really bad. And in New Orleans at the time, the murder rate was off the chain. So like, I feel like that Cosby respectability, like that Cosby conservatism wouldn't have, it might've been like something that people clung to at the time, you know, Like and it but it feels passe now.
0: Yeah, but I think there was always that element of stop victim blaming. And this is a conversation that Jay and I have going back, you know, to our earliest podcasts and just in in on our personal lives. It's the macro versus the micro. You know, at what point is Crazy K responsible for his own behaviors? And he says, like, and and I think that was the hardcore convert convert scene mm. where, you know, he's, he kills the people and then he's brought down into that chamber. And it's like, what is his responsibility and how much of that does he actually control? And that's the complicated thing because this is one of the things I found fascinating when I went to college. I lived in a large dorm, right. Um, that had about 700 people in it. And, The dorm would have become the projects had there not been constant cleaning people through the building, constantly checking to make it clean. Do you know what I mean? The only thing that separated the dorm from the Marcy projects was the level of money and attention paid to it. And that's kind of how I feel when I see some of these films. Like it's not that these black people are all degenerates and need to be responsible for their own behavior. It's just that there's not the proper attention paid. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of something about
2: the film in general is other than like the gang members, it's a pretty middle-class film. Like it's, it's mostly not in the hood or anything like that. You know, in the -hmm. the case that the the black cops are professionals and, you know, like uh, especially the KKK comeuppance, there's a lot of like leadership characters that are black um, there's the one dude who's like the the guy who's warning them the the crazy old man. He's like a cross between Sergeant Slaughter and a, a scarecrow. <laughs> <laughs> like he's he uh overacting. Yeah, oh, I mean, and not, there's no one in this movie that's not overacting. Yeah, I mean, very, yeah, I mean seriously. and that's kind of what's awesome. Like the
1: fucking Mortician is so great. Oh yeah. Like just mm-hmm. such a cool character. Um, well, I, I feel that Donald Glover may have taken from that Mr. Sims' character when he was thinking about uh, Teddy Perkins in Atlanta.
3: Oh. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Because there's there's a a poise even in the the facial structure of the mask that's made. That's true. That's very true. It's re, it's pretty similar. And I really loved the physicality of uh, Clarence Williams III's performance. It was That's probably my favorite part of this movie. Yeah, oh, I loved too. his performance yeah. as well. Yeah.
3: Something that really struck me with this movie is uh, the way in which it sort of had me confronting questions of when something is heavy handed or didactic or overtly political. And then I think, you know, this is something that's come up on Scary Thoughts many, many times is when, you know, a movie has a very defined message and you agree with it versus if you don't, and how do you critique, how do you sort of like split your your opinion of it into, well, what do I think of it outside of whether or not I agree with the politics of it? And then are the politics actually delivered in a way that is or is not annoying to me? Are you saying Um, that haunted slave dolls don't have rights?
2: Is that what you disagree (laughs) with? (laughs) This is terrible.
1: Typical <laughs> from <laughs> Canada. What's what's uh... well, that completely derailed my train of thought? <laughs> sorry. Uh, well, <laughs> in, in, in an attempt to bring it back, Mark, like I feel that more than any other genre, horror often begs or requires ironic viewing. So yes. I don't think, in terms of messaging, this movie is very successful. it's not convincing anyone because it's not you know because it's obvious it's so on the nose anyone on either side of the of the coin here will know what's being done so I feel like I could see a neo-nazi watching this movie ironically and then really loving this scene where he's fucking with the black kid in in that like nine inch nails broken snuff film for a black person setting (laughs) so like it's just it's not changing anyone's mind So let me let me throw this
0: out there: Is this the Tyler Perry of scary movies, like where everything has to be obvious, ham-handed, because the audience is expected to not know as much or not have the relationship to complexity?
1: Not necessarily. I think this is more akin to just horror in general. Like one of the reasons I actually like love this movie. I don't love is a really strong word. I really like it. I enjoyed watching it. It's fun. It's historically interesting. Uh, there's a lot to love about it. But I think the experience in which I assess those things is as much in common with every other horror movie I take in. Okay. I, yeah. I have a
2: bit of a different take. I, I I might take a different path on this one. And so Tales from the Crypt in particular and horror anthologies kind of generally are like Tyler Perry level morality tales. Like in Tales from the Crypt, mm. if you... Uh, You know, you cheat somebody out of money on the diamond ring, you'll be crushed to death by a diamond ring monster or something. You know, like, it's just, it's (laughs) always really Or like you, you know, you throw the world series baseball game and then they, they kill you and use your entrails for the baselines. You know, like that, that's (laughs) totally what would happen. (laughs) It's like monkey paw, like every episode. And I think each one of these little segments are morality tales. Uh, But what's interesting is it's not really, unless you're considering that the audience might be black people killing each other. It's, it's not really pointing it back at the au- audience at all. But I like, it's not addressing, it's interesting. Like you talked about like the personal behavior politics. It's, uh, it's not pointing at like systemic racism. It's pointing at individual racists and their comeuppance, like as in the KKK comeuppance or the cops, it's like, you do a racist thing, something happens to you, not, you do it, and you support a system. It's, it's. I don't know if it's like a slight difference.
1: Well, I it? wonder if that's... all the messaging's really pointed at black people specifically. Like, I feel that um, movie audiences, especially then compared to now, were a lot more segregated.
0: I I agree with that, and I think when I saw this movie, I thought this is for black people. Now. If you're white, you're probably going to see it. I don't say if you're white, like no white person would be able to see this. But if you're white in the 90s, you're not going to be able to see the messaging. And maybe it just looks like a horror film unless you're involved in that element. But if you're black, that's these are very poignant messages that they're talking to you about. Gang violence, drugs, all these things are literally on the road that will bring you to hell. Stop doing this stuff or you're destroying your own community, you're selling drugs to your own people. Stop. That, that was the message in the eighties and the nineties to black people. And it, it proposes that if you just stopped doing this, the world would be fine. Do you know what I mean? Like if, if that, the cop in Rogue Cop Revelation, had he just stood up, Martin Morehouse would be alive. No, that's not what would have happened. His whole career would be fucked. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, and he might have gotten killed too. Yeah. You know, it, it proposes, it supposes all these things that if these things happened, this would have been right. The good thing I liked about Tales from the Crypt is there was somebody who wanted more than they were supposed to have. And that kind of led them down this place. Like, but you always knew who the person was, who deserved it. Mm-hmm. And this is it's asking this whole community of people, like these thing is happening to you because you're not taking the responsibility for yourself and like Crazy K deserved what was happening to him. It never begs a larger, like maybe we should be um, asking these larger structural questions.
3: Sure. I What I was thinking of when you brought up the, the idea that this film doesn't really take on structural issues is that this is kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, but you know, it, it is in part in the pejorative, but like, it's a cheap, shitty, fun horror movie, like a lot of other cheap, shitty, fun horror movies that I spend most of my time watching. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and sometimes they're ham-fisted with political messaging. Sometimes they're simplistically moralizing. Sometimes they're just cheap thrills, but they almost never are, successfully take on anything very broad or complicated that is that's that's a rare gem and so and by my saying this i'm not excusing that i'm not saying uh we're asking too much of of a movie but rather it's almost in keeping it's almost on par with other low budget horror movies from the 90s that it's just kind of going to give you a one-dimensional moral not unlike a Tyler Perry movie. But although it doesn't take on things with too much dimension, I think that the thing that it does, I don't know about successfully, but it is not just this is bad, person is punished. There is an interesting context to these stories that gives it, um, some of them, a little extra dimension that
1: uh, maybe some of the... Tales from the Crypt stories wouldn't necessarily. Well, yeah, it's kind of like, um, it's exciting when something knows what it is and expresses it well. And I think, I think, like Tales from the Hood, it it knew what it was doing. The director is like explicit about how
2: you know he wanted to make something that was something, you know. And then you know, yes. I think Spike Lee involved at this time is itself saying something.
1: Yeah, he was in school. He was in school days,
2: I think, with him. Yeah, he also, I think he wrote Fear of a Black Hat. Yeah. And yes. I, would, I would love to know which Chappelle shows he uh, wrote on.
1: 23 episodes, though, apparently. Like a ton. According to
3: IMDb, yeah. Yeah. One thing that I think is interesting, just thinking more about the complicated backdrop to these stories, sort of adding the dimension that maybe it's missing with its messaging, is that um, in Tales from the Hood 2, which is... A far How inferior, was it, by the way? It, it's, a, it's, it's an inferior movie. It's actually, uh, I, I almost switched it off. It was uh, The exposition was really obvious. All the caricatures are amped up even more. But the storylines are maybe better. They're actually kind of interesting and complicated. You know, the, the storylines in Tales from the Hood are kind of like racist politician is attacked by dolls that are reincarnations of slaves of his ancestors. Like it, it's pretty it's pretty easy. But the the stories in Tales from the Hood too are like actually kind of weird and complicated. But then unfortunately they're they're delivered in a, a very one-dimensional way. It's too bad.
1: Well it's weird because like the framework that this movie exists in, it's easy to see how that framework can be successful in something like the Chappelle show. Which was taking the piss out of all these one-dimensional stereotypes, and yeah. this is doing a similar thing. One thing that's pretty great about this, though, in terms of the horror canon is, I have to say, like, harrowing crucifying Jesus, pretty badass kill. <laughs> and then, like, the, 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 the final needle going into his mouth through that, like, kind of Jason 3D, like, camera angle. I was pretty into that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's some fun, like, Sam Raimi-type shit
2: in this yeah. movie. I mean, yeah. or, like, the physics of, like, how David Allen Greer gets just twisted to death. Beautiful. It's so rad. I mean, it's, and it's so weird. There's a lot of, like, weird choices in
0: this movie that I think add a lot of joy to it. Yeah. That whole boys do get bruised with David Allen Greer it was just weird in general. Like, I didn't understand, but the mom coming on to the teacher, it was one of the ones that really had no real message.
1: What are you talking about? Domestic violence? That's a bit, like, I mean, I don't know if the message is it message. It has a theme for but... sure. And it's a theme. But
0: it doesn't attack race. It's not about racism.
1: It's about. No. That's apparently the most personal story to him. Like uh, domestic violence is like something he really wanted to tackle. And I also thought like it's a cool uh, – I mean it's, it's it's so obvious. It's it's so like saved by the bell or whatever, you know, like kind of messaging. But The more you know. Yeah, it's one of those. But, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it was fun to see David Allen Greer as a villain.
2: Yeah, he's yeah, was, pretty scary. Like I love when he comes he in. He was.
1: He comes in with that op- – he
2: just like po- open palm strikes the kid right in the grill. And just like – he doesn't even just slap –
3: his girlfriend,
2: he like punches her right in the fucking face.
3: <laughs> it's yeah. so gnarly. He beats the teacher's ass. Like the, the choice of him, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, the Peter Fonda choice in, was it uh, once upon a time in the West or which, which spaghetti Western is it where Peter Fonda was like this, you know, beloved actor. And then yeah. in the first scene of this Western he's in, he just shoots a kid dead. Like, and it was like, it was this big shock in Hollywood that their darling would do something so awful. Um, It sort of reminded me of that kind of gesture because uh, good casting. I I love too, how he like, just so
2: like, you know, he's such a good guy, like brushes the mom off. It's like, that's Ice Cube's girlfriend from
0: Friday. She's hot. (laughs) (laughs) You're a teacher. You got nothing else going on. (laughs) I felt like the scene was more aligned like with what I would have seen in a regular horror film
1: so, which was nice to see, see it's kind yeah, of like exactly. it's like what you said often on the um podcast in terms of like what would you call it like something uh trauma porn yeah or, yeah where it, it's just nice to see black people just being people it was a nice to have that variety I think amongst the others a really interesting interview with the
3: director writer director whose name I can't pronounce either. Uh, and he was talking about that segment and the producers wanted, I guess, the beating as originally shot was quite epic and went on like, you know, too long, very purposefully. And the producers insisted that he cut it back because... um you know, they just felt like it was too uncomfortable. It was just too much. And he was like, well, no, that's the point. You know, it, it has to go on long enough that it really sinks in, that this is horrifying. And he brought up that uh, they had test screenings where, um, as happens, um, during that scene, teenage kids would like laugh when he's dealing out the violence. And, um, you know, and he had he has some theories about why that happens. And you know, when you're, when you're someone who potentially, uh, grows up in the midst of violence, uh, laughing as a way of not letting it have power over you is a just reaction or a valid reaction rather. But he was saying it it was a shame that he couldn't keep the scene as long as he wanted because those kids can laugh, but if the beating continues and continues and continues, the laughter stops. And he, he felt it like it got to be at least a little longer. But see, but... what he could have done, though, is
1: rocked mm-hmm. a they
2: live and had it go from being hilarious to uncomfortable to hilarious again. I don't know
1: about that. <laughs> well, that's just Andy Kaufman logic, but I see what you're saying. <laughs> it's, um, it's interesting because a similar phenomenon happened with Menace to Society two years prior. Um, it was mentioned in the Champs interview where Moshi Kasher is talking to one of the Hughes brothers. And um, Moshe Kasher is saying how he remembers his entire friend group, like predominantly black at the time in Oakland, just laughing hysterically at the Korean shop owners being murdered. You know, it's like misery loves comedy. I grew up and it was funny. Like, I don't know why, like
0: this is so bad. So Jay, cut this from the podcast. I don't know. Uh, um, <laughs> We'll be the judge what's of Love that. got to, What's Love got to do with it? Oh. With Ike Turner beating oh. the crap out of Tina Turner. To this day, you hear Eat the Cake anime in rap songs. Right. Do you know what I mean? Because, and that Eat the Cake is when he beat her up at the coffee shop and beat up a friend.
3: I've seen a million more drag shows than. I have room in my head for and uh, (laughs) a very, very common theme in drag numbers is uh, the tragic heroine and uh, often violence against women as the narrative in the drag number. And this, you know, stems from something like, let's say, Mommy Dearest, you do a Mommy Dearest number, right? It's all about abusing child abuse and uh, violence against Christine. And drag numbers often have a redemptive quality, but there's also something about queer men enacting perhaps their own childhood trauma on stage by embodying a victimized woman. So there is this way in which it, it there's some othering going on, but there's also identification going on and, and the act of laughing at perhaps your own historical suffering that can be a really redemptive part of a, a culture's creative output.
0: And it's a way to it's a way to adjust to the trauma. Like mm. if you're like if you're constantly surrounded by it, then you're not threatened by it if you find it funny. It's a survival mechanism for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know the scene in Menace to Society when um Kane's cousin gets murdered Right. Like, and they have to choose between whether they want to leave the person or bring him to the hospital and they have to leave him on the ground. And they're kind of like, well, that, that, whatever is dead, he's dead. And that was like the biggest joke in college. Like, people would watch that scene and laugh. Like, Whenever you had a bad hand of cards, they'd be like, that nigga's dead. It is a way to adjust with being uncomfortable like about your life. Like When I grew up in the 80s, in the 90s, and Boston wasn't as nearly as bad as other areas like Newark or Camden or other places, but it was pretty bad. And it was the case that there would be a shootout in the neighborhood. You would run inside, wait for the shooting to stop, and go back outside and play again. Do you know what I mean? That's just what it was in the nineties.
3: This is reminding me a bit of, I believe it was Boston, something you were saying on your episode about the Medea movie on Race Trader, um, about the child abuse and sort of this, this sort of like jarring whiplash between like these crazy comedy moments and then something really
1: like serious and not funny at all. I think it's the whole reason people watch horror movies. Like what we're kind of observing in different communities and cultures, it's like some people like to put those things aside, never look at them, never address them. And then there's some people who just like to maybe confront them in different ways or confront extreme circumstances. I just think it's, it's a very normal behavior that's seen it at different levels. It, it's a way we understand things. I mean, just
2: look
3: at the popularity of like murder shows with women. Like that's the same I
2: was same thinking urge, the same thing, you know? yeah
3: true crime and women the women audience uh portion of true crime audiences is
2: it's like seven to ten
3: yeah it's
0: considerable even though men are more likely to be murdered you know it's one of those things that women just make more compelling victims women are more compelling as victims to you (laughs) 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 just put the comma in the wrong place (laughs) you know i think i i think that like there's this thing where i think that and I don't have any data to support this. I think that when a woman is murdered, people really want to know why. Like, how could this happen? She was in Central Park. She was so lovely. She had her whole life ahead of him. And when a guy is murdered, it's kind of like, well, what did he do? Right. Well, this is kind of a this is kind of adjacent to the Men, Women, and Chainsaws,
3: uh, the book by Carol Clover. Her premise that, you know, her her book is all about kind of reckoning with. Why the protagonists of nearly every 80s slasher movie was a young woman when the audiences presumably for these movies were young men. And her explanation was it's easier for young men to identify with a woman protagonist who is the victim than if it was a male protagonist. You know, a, a woman being chased by a, a knife-wielding maniac is a more compelling and more sympathetic victim than if it was some guy.
0: That's amazing. And that's the beauty of Stephen King, whom I love, mm-hmm. because he doesn't really
1: do that. Right. Like, well, that book specifically is to speaking primarily to slasher films, mm. not, uh, where, where Stephen King's was a little more, uh, was not that. No, he wasn't. But a lot of the, a lot of the victims in his books
0: were men. Like at least the like if you think about like the shining or... well, I feel like Shelley Duvall was a pretty strong female victim. She was, she was, but like I think it wasn't. Think about Misery. His horror was always often, a, at least in my opinion, a bit more sophisticated. More than slasher films, for sure. We're, totally,
3: slasher films. Again, I, I feel like we're we're coming back to the like simplistic, one note, one dimensional narrative that is just yeah. it's fun. But it's uh, it, part of its fun is that it's not very complicated. Yeah, this whole thing sort of adjacent
2: to uh, Patrice O'Neill's joke about Natalie Holloway. Like, there's just there's just some victims that are just more compelling. Like the joke is basically like he's like, who's that white lady that disappeared? The whole audience knows, and like like two weeks later, there's a black <laughs> woman that disappeared, and no one in the audience knows her right. name. Right. But so I, I think like yeah, I think there is a natural. Like, I mean, just look at the fucking, like, how concerned people were with Lady Gaga's dogs. Like, my wife, it was like the fucking Lindbergh baby for her. Yeah, I mean, we have this, <laughs> we have the same kind of stupid ass dogs. So, I guess it's a little close to home, but it's um, the next boy in the well. I know. It's crazy. God,
3: there,
2: uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, it's kind of interesting with animals, though. Like, I could watch any number of cartel execution videos, and I hate seeing animals kill each
3: other. That's like, a common a, Non-human How are you spending your time? What? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, like at a certain point, you just have watched too many horror movies and it just doesn't do it for you anymore. And so you
1: gotta <laughs> start watching like, like Congolese rebel knife fighting and shit. Like you just gotta... Oh, Jesus. Going back more to horror, what's unique about the genre, I think more than any other genre, it's probably one of the most accepting... I guess, well, it's weird, but I'm already, like, correcting myself with the lack of black horror there is, but it's weirdly, like, in, in a lot of ways, one of the most inclusive uh, genres in terms of taste. Explain. Well, like, you know, you have something like The Witch uh, from 2015, which is obsessively tailored over, like a Kubrick movie, and then you have something like Tales from the Hood, which is one-dimensional and and goofy at times or or like something like Toxic Avenger which is even more absurd and all of it constitutes as horror now obviously like there's a range of quality in every genre you see but the joy in which people enjoy all three of those movies is kind of on the same level at a lot of times mm. it's i think it's one of the most um, attractive components to horror films
2: yeah, it's it, it's definitely unique for as far as genres go because you think about like no one like people love low budget horror. They're people who just get just oh I can't get enough. Like our overlooked theater buddies, like they just love that shit. Um, nobody is like I like low budget dramas, right? You know, right. Like the, the, I mean, maybe you're a Hallmark <laughs> person, but you don't identify with it. You know, it might be a guilty pleasure or something like that. But nobody was like, oh, give me the bottom twenty percent of
0: historical dramas. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. There is the whole reality TV, which is only low budget drama. That's interesting. Like that—that's the Hammer horror of drama. Yeah, the Hammer horror of (laughs) drama, low budget. You know, Real Housewives, Love and Hip Hop. I don't know. Like, is it the same kind of thinking? Like, because I, because there's a part of me that imagines that you have to suspend a little bit of
1: artistic vision well there's also though like if you're watching something more for effects if you're watching something more for kills like there's a lot of uh fetishism in the horror community that hones in on very specific components mm. like uh again like the kills and tales from the hood are very creative you have like david allen mm. greer being folded up into mm. a pile of mush you know it's very bizarre but it's engaging and it's i don't know it's Mortal uh, it's Kombat,
0: fun. finishing him moves
2: kind of thing. 100%. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I like that. That's yeah. interesting. There's, there, I think there's like maybe some Marshall mcluhan stuff here too, like about the medium. Because up until probably the internet or you know, downloading movies, you sort of had to go out of your way to like seek out horror. Like you would have to go to a place and get it. And, you know, maybe like not every blockbuster had the rad shits. So you'd have to go to a specialty store. So I think there's like a culture that grew up around horror that wouldn't have grown up around like more of a passive entertainment, like, uh, like reality television. Like it, I think like reality television is so mass and horror, even though it is universally loved is, is more specialized.
1: Yeah, and I'm also trying to think, do other genres have anthology movies or is that primarily a horror convention? Yeah, like Christmas
2: movies are the first thing that come to mind. There's like that sort of thing. I mean,
3: I don't know if it's the same way is like where there's a host,
2: like a host. A, yeah,
3: oh. I guess with the host. Yeah, that's a good
2: point.
0: I mm-hmm. mean, do you do you consider Twilight Zone horror? Was, horror, Jason.
2: Yeah. The the difference there, though, would be there would be only one episode of horror. But then later on, you have the Twilight Zone movies, which I think fit this format pretty well, except yeah. for, except for they're not introduced. Like there's no interstitial introductions.
1: It's horror sci-fi, whereas in like, well, actually, interestingly enough, I would say that going to the Twilight Zone, there was that, um, there's a few doll episodes, but there's, there's one of the doll episodes where the father, I think he's a stepdad, and he's trying to kill the doll, and he trips, and I think he dies because he falls down the stairs, yep. just like um, what killed like the light-skinned black dude filming the KKK guy. Yep. Uh, that I, 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 I wouldn't be surprised if that fall was a reference to that specifically. Because it was almost placed, I think, in like the exact same place uh, as the Twilight Zone episode. Right. So there's there's horror episodes. Like the X-Files too, like had that episode called Home, which is essentially like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre like Hills Have I tribute, which is yes. amazing. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's a horror episode for sure.
3: Mm-hmm. Um I wanna go I wanna explore this thing about budget a little more because I think that something that as we've said on our podcast and just came up earlier is that, um, part of what's interesting about horror movies is that they are so often low budget and that is sometimes weirdly part of the draw. And so it leads to a lot of like risk-taking and experimentation and they are often low budget, but high return on investment, but someone's still holding the purse strings. And so, There is not still not a really robust legacy of African-American horror, despite that accessibility, that economic accessibility, like it's, it's still prey to the way capitalism functions, right? Yeah. It's sort of implicit in my, my, my wandering is that like, well, wait, why aren't there more black horror movies? The interest is there they don't cost that much it Uh, it
1: makes sense too like tales from the hood's a great example of how it can really work effectively obviously in this example it's one-dimensional but these stories can be interpreted many other ways like i was thinking back when you asked on us our you know the episode we were on with you guys um what do you want Jordan Peele to do next? Like, you know, I was watching this movie and I, I was thinking, you know, I want Jordan Peele and Donald Glover to get together and make a Tales from the Hood 4 and just outshine everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, Boston, you made a comment on the Us episode as well, saying that maybe the reason a lot of black people in your experience don't fuck with horror much is because, you know, there's they have enough trauma they're already reckoning with, except for the fact that, like, horror has always been a way in which trauma is expressed. And I think this is a really good example. I think black people could benefit tremendously from the allegories that horror provides. So there's a couple of things like black people are very spiritual and
0: there are things that they don't play around with. Like I was watching the servant Apple TVs, uh, M night Shyamalan TV show, which I actually really like it's, it's, there's a lot of, issues with it, but part of it is like, is this lady like an evil spirit or is this lady like one of the protagonists? And the reaction from the people that I were watching it with who are black were like, we don't play with that kind of thing. Like if it was an evil spirit, Uh, like we're not messing with it, it's not coming in the house. There's not going to be a black exorcist. There's not going to be a black exorcist because black people are leaving. Like do you know what I mean? Like comedians that have told this joke a million times, but it's so true. Like black people think they hear gunshots and start running. Like the black thing for self-preservation, whatever that is, because you always feel like you're in danger, like to run away from danger is so strong that it just makes horror films up and they're current just
1: unrealistic to black people. Well, then explain the connection people have, like Menace to Society has gunshots constantly through it, but that like is one of the most beloved black films in the 90s that's because it's depicting something that black people are very familiar with gotcha
0: i think the reason that get out was such a successful movie and so like well-acclaimed in the black community is because the horror really wasn't that they were taking out this man's brain right the horror were that these white people pretended to hate us but really wanted to be us and that's something that oh yeah that's kind of what we always thought whether that's true or not do you know what i mean is something different, and I think, like the the benefit of being white, like is you you can have these abstract concepts and really run with them, and and I don't just think that black people just see things like that's not really gonna it's not really gonna happen. I'm buying it. Hmm. You know, I
2: I would say I as a white dude, I probably know like a, a larger than average number of black people in my personal life and just friends just from working in a hip hop club and being from New Orleans, and all those dudes love horror. Like they fucking love it. So I, it, it's. I'm trying to think of. I don't
0: know. It very well might be the case that like there are like a number of black people that like horror films. When I grew up, Candyman was the only one that I felt like people really watched. And for whatever reason, horror just. And maybe it's just my niche community in Boston. It never really was a big part of it. Now we we watch Freddy Krueger. We watch Jason. You know, we we did watch those things, and maybe there's just, just not enough of us to to make up the kind of numbers that are just going to go out and watch. Well, what? What I
1: wonder if just because you're not being seen in it, like it's more an issue of actually representation be, than than like people being way too religious. Because listen, like both of my parents are super Christian, and they would they they have not seen and refused to see The Exorcist because they believe it to be too real. Like I, I obviously that those communities exist across all races. Yeah, that
2: totally makes me think what I was about to say is, um, I wonder if it's like maybe even a consequence of like Boston, you know, like, you know who's fucking superstitious? The Irish, like crazy superstitious. (laughs) And uh, like, but dad's Irish, right? Like Irish Catholic. And I went to Catholic school and stuff. And like, talk about some throwing salts over the shoulder people, man. Um,
0: And I wonder if it just like permeated like the the city, you know? Like, And you're also talking about New Orleans and New Orleans is very much a horror like louisiana is very much voodoo and all the all the like the 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 david duke character in the movie i did they say but he was in louisiana wasn't he so yeah i'm glad we're hitting this point because i did want to talk a little bit more about like
2: david duke and the experience of david duke in louisiana and the whole deal so so the character in the movie that corbin Burson played is named after is named duke metger And um, it's a kind of portmanteau of two racists. Uh, There's David Duke and Kurt Metzger. And Kurt Metzger is a fucking Nazi. Like when people talk about like, oh, this guy's a Nazi. There's not Nazis like that anymore. Like there might be, but like this dude would go on like Phil Donahue in a fucking SS uniform and like, and just, you know, be exactly what you think he would be. You know, now it's like, you know, maybe the stage looks like a rune. I don't know. Like it's just... like It's more crypto if it's there at all. But uh, so these were two like, like nobody thought David Duke wasn't a racist, like when he was elected to Congress, but in, he was in the Ku Klux Klan. Like it wasn't like he had excuses. It was just like, yeah, I'm not with that organization anymore. And then where he got elected up North in Louisiana is fucking racist. Like I don't, I would not want to be uh, dark of skin at dark of night in, in the area that elected him. Um, there's a heavy probably even to this day probably some sort of heavy clan presence up there but you know I used to park his car it was so fucking weird I worked at this Italian restaurant you parked David Duke's car David Duke's car a white Mercedes how fucking hilarious is that
1: (sighs) Um, you hear it here first people
2: (laughs) (laughs) but like he would come up and you know and he would just eat at this restaurant and the kitchen staff was black so you can probably imagine how that went wow Uh, (laughs) Uh, Like I may have seen a dick go on a plate. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, like, so it, it was weird. And like, But like the thing about that guy was like, he, you think he hates black people? He really fucking hates Jews. And I used to, when he would come in, I'd be like, man, I wonder if he knew if I was Jewish or he would just fucking hate me. Like, cause like he would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course the blacks are a problem but the real problem are the Jews. And like, even to this day, he's like an active, like anti-Jewish, like, you know, crush Israel kind of dude. I mean, it's fucked up. Like the fact that that dude, and he's huge too. He's like a power lifter. Like that's the other weird thing about that guy. Um, but the way he's represented in this, in this movie, that's how I felt about him at the time. Like, you know, like it, it, you would, it was like an absurd, character from the past and it was very especially if you're like kind of young and in punk rock shit like it was such a generational division like i remember there would be people who it was like donald trump level of fucking disbelief when when he was doing all that shit down there and he got nothing done in congress of course
0: there was a podcast called slow burn um and they do like a deep dive into different things they did a deep dive into monica Lewinsky's. um and the last one, they actually did a deep dive into the Big Epoch murders, mm. which is actually really good. The last one they did was on David Duke. And it's actually really pretty good. And they talk about how he had to soften his racist tone. Mm-hmm. And th- what we see being played out by the black character. The PR dude? The PR dude. and And that actually is in a lot of ways how it really played out. And giving white Americans in Louisiana an excuse to vote for a racist meant leaving your obviously racist things at the door and kind of repenting for them. I was in the Ku Klux Klan, but that's not the reason why I'm running for Congress. I firmly believe that black people should get off welfare. Do you know what I mean? That's why, because you as a white person aren't getting a fair shake. And with the David Duke, I think in the slow burn, and I could be... This characterizing this, but I think in the Slow Burn series that I read, listened to about David Duke, they were talking about that he was a natural evolution of Trump. You know, the politics that Duke Meckers was his name in Tales from the Hood became the or was the Republican and still is the GOP ethos now in a lot of ways, not always, but in a lot of ways. Yeah it, it's interesting like how like he's just a racist
2: running the same agenda. You know what I mean? Like his agenda isn't really like it would be the same if he was a non I can't, I don't like a non-racist Republican, I guess. I don't know how you'd say it. Yeah.
3: But like um well the poli- the policy the policies are the same. The policies are the same. It's just your the the rhetoric behind it is different. But the policies are always
2: same, the same. Like yeah. there's awesome memes of like the drones with the Black Lives Matter stickers on them, yeah, like it's fucking great. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Uh, the, the Corbin Burnson southern accent is offensive to my sensibilities. In this, oh, movie. <laughs> it is I I, I I feel like they should have gotten a southern actor to portray this role, and he should be canceled. <laughs> <laughs>
3: anybody on twitter get that started for us
2: i i was really surprised you know what's interesting like in, in the dialogue was the very first part with the cops i was like nobody's dropping any n-bombs like he when he was like you can't murder a that citizen like if, like tarantino had written this like citizen wouldn't have been <laughs> hurt, you know what i mean yeah. and when i was watching yeah. that like up until like it got to the the kkk part i was like man it did is this like one of these like you know like respectable like we're not going to use the n-word kind of things and then like he comes on like nope nope and he actually has
0: all kinds of interesting variations in the phrase Uh, I'm going to tell you that he used the word nigglet and we've used that ever since that movie like black people have used it
2: (laughs) I have I've heard it internalized and I I could not I had never heard it before I actually even went
0: that was the first time I think it had ever been said nigglet I was like wait so like sometimes sometimes racism is so amazing, like <laughs> you have to stop like and That is just a funny thing to say. Sometimes anyway. sorry, shit's no. just funny, you know what I mean? Like because yes. I mean, it's so
2: <laughs> fucked up. And what's weird though is like I, I kind of I, I'm glad you said the word so I didn't have to, or because I was trying <laughs> to decide is is it is it enough of a variation to like be acceptable or not? Because it's not really used in the power. Way anyway, so we're past that, so thank you, Boston. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he took one for the team, but I was curious about the etymology of it. I was like, it is, I'd never heard it before. This, I was like, you know, the, you know, where did so then you're thinking about like, oh, what's the responsibility of a black writer to not introduce something to the white vernacular? <laughs> yeah,
3: you know? oh, like, yeah,
2: like it's that's it, it, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, he has no responsibility, clearly. I'll, I'll, I'll he gets a pass, <laughs> you know, but. Yeah, that that phrase, it, I think, was born from this movie.
0: It um, was like people started using it. Like there's sometimes where racism is so perfect that you just have to be yeah. in awe of it.
2: I will also add, I've never heard a white person say it. Hmm. I've that's only, good. I've only ever heard. <laughs> yeah, that's that's okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> I I've heard like adult men, like disdainfully say it to kids that are like walking by, like being like stand by, you know, just kids going by. Like, I remember like the little kids that would try to get into the club. Like, I mean, kids like 17, 16, like the bouncers, that, that would be their term.
0: Really? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah, there was a weatherman, white guy who got fired because he said, it's gonna be such and such or Martin Luther Coon Day, right? And he had said, he must, he. it was a Freudian slip. He must have said it so much in his house <laughs> that, and that's when you like, wow, that's pretty. That's so racistly clever. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's some things that just enter the vernacular that are just so racistly clever that you got to give the racists their props. You know, I mean, like
2: there, sometimes just,
0: sometimes <laughs> just like a terrible rip is a terrible rip. Like, like
2: for example, here, uh, what what's this dude's name? Sean King, the activist guy. What about him though? Well, like people call him Talcum X. Yes, it's fucking hilarious. It's amazing. Like, I mean, it just is, you know. And like, like I, I won't comment on whether or not I think he's white or not. But he's done some good work and he has done some terrible things. So we'll just leave it at that. But Talcum X is fucking hilarious. That is hilarious. That's
0: hilarious.
2: <laughs> I mean, that's. It's also like that. It's such a. a I, so there, that Patrice O'Neill uh, documentary just came out on Comedy Central and I haven't had a chance to watch it, but I've oh. heard a lot of people comment on it. It's and about the, time. Yeah. But one of the things they say is like, it's sad that he's gone, but it's also sad that that era of comedy is gone. And it, like people would just rip on each other. And that's kind of how I grew up. I never heard it referred to as like the dozens, but that's what people call it. Like at the hip hop club I worked at, you had better not come up with a fucked up shirt, a weird haircut. Uh, off color nikes any of that shit like if you would like the whole idea was like gray man style just come up as neutral as possible the biggest mistake i ever made showed up with fucking dreadlocks one night jesus christ no you (laughs) what were you thinking yeah and then i remember this guy kima who was just like kind of the heart and soul of the uh strong arm of the bar was just like you look like a motherfucking voodoo doll. And I was like,
1: <laughs> oh. I was like, I don't know if that's cool or not.
3: <laughs> he's, like,
2: he's like, it's not cool. Go the fuck. That?
1: Was that before or after you purchased a Sepultura record?
2: Uh, I had already owned Sepultura <laughs> album in high school. Uh, Chaos AD was amazing. Um, Absolutely. But you know, I, I, you know, I got to the Bay Area and started putting my dick in some hippie girls and that's what happens, mm-hmm. you know?
3: gotta remind me i was in i was in jamaica once and there was this white guy with dreadlocks there and i just remember people would yell hey maxi priest at him i don't know who that <laughs> oh, if you can picture maxi priest that that's a nice dig
0: uh, uh, For man. me,
3: though, i mean i'd make it a joke about the hippie thing it was
2: more about like i love like skinny puppy and nine inch nails yeah. so like my reference for dreadlocks wasn't it just personally wasn't black it was filtered through like you know like it came in through reggae came into punk punk came into industrial music so obviously that's where it came from but to me i was just like you know ogre looks fucking cool like yeah and post-apocalyptic like that's exactly what my hair would look like if i was riding through the
0: wasteland so let's get to it (laughs) which it's not that's hilarious not take to dreadlocks at all (laughs) I can't remember, Jay, if we had this conversation on the podcast or off the podcast but we were talking about how black people are not allowed to have triggers, you know, like because if you have Uh, triggers, then people are going to go after you. We didn't call it the dozens until there was this book called The Dirty Dozens. And I don't really know. But where like that whole thing came from we would probably say something like he's capping on you or he's whatever. Yeah,
2: same. I had never heard the dozens until people started referring to it. Is that like in a hipstery way? And
0: I I don't know. Yeah. And if you had a flaw or anything wrong with you, then you would be talked about so badly. And the, the thing is, but you had to learn how to hit back in the same way. They referenced this in Atlanta when the kid committed suicide because he had the fake shirt on. Yeah, know, Like that's like how bad it would actually get though. Like that was like in Atlanta, that was like realistic. Like if, if you had fake stuff on or if you had
1: anything wrong with you, then they were coming after well, you. It's probably one of the reasons uh, Patrice O'Neill and Paul Mooney who are kind of like kindred spirits never got big. Mm. Um, I mean, Chappelle found Paul Mooney so ruthless that uh he like just let him riff randomly. Like there's deleted scenes on the Chappelle Show DVDs of like extended cuts of Paul Mooney just randomly riffing, and like Mark Maron has a really funny uh, observation on Mooney of like, "Oh, I I get what you're doing. You're making white people feel as comfortable as possible until they fess up." <laughs> oh, He's, it's like Paul Mooney's really trying to bring the racist out of me. <laughs>
3: this thing you're describing do you feel that this is this endures because my like from where i'm sitting in san francisco all people seem to lay their triggers out on the floor in front of them and almost dare you to cross them so that they can take to twitter and cancel you for what you said and that goes for everybody. Yeah, they're like traps.
1: Yeah, you're in an extreme environment in those cases. Like I, I spent some time in a, you know, the Northwest, P- Portland, San Francisco. I, I get it. Uh, I think it's progress. You know, progress has weird ways of showing up. I, but in you're, terms you're, you're, of Chad like, Chad
3: and I are shaking our heads in total disagreement. That is <laughs> I disagree no, 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 no. no. Hold on. <laughs> he,
1: hear me out though. Like okay. it's kind of like cultural backlash. I don't think that c- specific component is good but it is due to the progress that has made that this bullshit is happening. Right. Like you can't get that sad reality in which I am not co-signing just for the record here and also have JPEG mafia in the hip hop community in some form. Right. Yeah. What um, I'm looking forward to. Like in future. everything has a cost.
2: Yeah. What, what I want to have happen is that eventually you can make fun of your transsexual friends lopsided tits and it's not about them being transsexual. It's about their lopsided tits. You know what I mean? Because ripping on each other is fucking fun. And maybe it's some sort of like, you know, like I've heard people make an argument that it's a byproduct of toxic masculinity and is therefore bad. Which is horseshit. Yeah. I mean, like, I I think that, like,
0: you need it to be tough. I had a conversation with Jay's mom, like, a couple months ago. And I said, the problem with schools is that they've taken bullying out. And I make this argument on the podcast. Uh, I agree. I agree.
2: I agree. But I think I, that, I don't know I that I agree that, I want to hear more
0: <laughs> so So I went on a trip with my wife's nephew, like let's say he's like 11 years old, and the kid was like a complete wuss, and like he would do weird things like we got him some funnel cake, and they put it in a bag, and the bag was warm. So in public, he's laying his head on the warm bag of funnel cake.
1: And I said, this is why we need to bring bullying back. Like bullying hasn't been removed; it's just shifted dynamic. And right now, bullying is primarily oriented around shame. Yeah. Yes, the bullies are the teachers now. And it's virtue signaling. It's like this Twitter backlash thing you're talking about. Because I I can't stand like the argument used against our time, which is. Everyone gets a trophy. Like that's, that shit doesn't even fucking exist. Oh, oh, yes. Oh, (laughs) it does here. It literally
3: does in San Francisco. Yeah. I swear (laughs) to you, this is real.
1: How would you, I guess, define that sentiment? Like what's an illustration of it that you see in San Francisco specific?
3: That everyone who participates gets the same award, no matter whether they try hard or not, because effort is hierarchical because rewarding um, people who are better than things than other people just shames the people who aren't as good. So everybody gets a trophy, literally.
2: It's been interesting watching you go full John Milius lately. I feel like I've mellowed <laughs> out and you've become much hard, more hardcore. Yeah. Well,
1: like- that's So it's weird because <laughs> I think that like my mom, you know, is a public educator and and normally, I feel that that criticism is attributed to schools. And so, I don't know, is like the experience in San Francisco a fair assessment of an actual cultural shift? I don't know. It's hard to say. I I think we're going to have to see what happens
3: uh, in the nearish future if it spreads or if San Francisco gets some sense. There are a lot of very interesting experiments happening think, in the Bay Area. I think and on the wave the is crashing.
2: Like people are not having it. Like, well, the
3: wave is definitely crashing. Like the DA uh,
2: here, the people are not having that shit. Like, but it's still happening. I, I mean, mean, he was elected, but like, you know what I'm saying? like, it, Like it, it, there's a, a fervor against it now.
1: Whether or not that is true, that it is as pervasive as we fear, right? Another thing that is equally contributing to for lack of a better term, we'll call it like the wussification of uh, these new generations. I think it's more just a natural response to them being pummeled by information constantly and being connected, quote unquote, constantly. I think um, this alienated bullshit we're in, it's weird how the pandemic has really exacerbated it. But it's exacerbated things that were already quite prevalent before the pandemic. This, like, just disconnect that people have. I don't know. It's, it's a hard thing to assess, but I think that's part of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean,
2: who knows what it's going to be? Like, it's just it's going to be whatever it is and inputs create weird outputs like when i was thinking about your your (laughs) your your pro bullying stance uh boston it made me think of like now like rick and morty has become my infinite jest i can't shut the fuck up about it (laughs) and and mark is to blame but you know the episode where uh you know rick rick takes over raising kids from gaia like there's a moment where he's like oh you have to put the jocks in with the the math kids and he's like well why would you do that and he's like oh they have to be bullied enough to get into space. And I think there's something about that <laughs> that it, like, you, you know, it's the, the classic fucking cheese ball, like weightlifter, Instagram guy. I think it's like pressure makes diamonds. Like, and I think that there's a truth to it, you know, and if everybody's doing the same, like what, what external force is going to make people like, you know, become harder and do more, or maybe they'll be nurtured into being beautiful Montessori
3: people. I mean, who knows? Yeah. I think that's, that's the, Problem with all this is that it's actually complicated. There's not a rule. Some some kids cannot be, cannot harden. They're just not built that way. Mm-hmm. Not every not yeah. everybody's designed to be bullied into a good citizen. Some people just like they need nurturing. They need a soft hand. They need love and comfort and attention to flourish. And some people need a really fucking hard rigid system that they can resist against everybody's different. But if, if bullying is the rule of the land, it's going to be fucking terrible for a lot of people. If everybody gets a trophy, it's going to be fucking terrible for a lot of people. Uh,
1: It's just,
3: people are complicated.
2: Yeah. I, I feel like if I have a kid, I would go totally against the grain. It would just be like Conan novels, weight training, Like, cause once you get him into like third or fourth grade and he's a thug, like, and he's able to smash his way through the hierarchy (laughs) of public school, like that's a good spot to be in.
3: This reminds me of a Patton Oswalt sketch where he's talking about watching uh, the kids play. His daughter is at a playground and he observes this one girl there and she's like attacking kids with a stick and being really violent and then he sees the little girl's father, like, march over to her. And he's like, oh, good. Dad's going to put a stop to this. And he, like, shows her how to correctly hold the stick and how to <laughs> correctly swing it and wield it. And, of course, Pat Oswald is, like, outraged. But then he's like, yeah, but the apocalypse is coming. And, like, who's going to survive? My daughter, who is just going to be armed with Star Trek trivia? Or that little
0: girl who knows how to stab other humans with a stick? Anyway. <laughs> I have a two-year-old and I have a 14-year-old. Yeah. And the constant push and pull with my wife is how much do you let them struggle? Right. You know what I mean? I'm more reductive, as Jay would say, when it comes to certain things because I think the world is an incredibly hard and incredibly cold place. Yep. And the world doesn't owe you understanding. Um, You know, you're not going to get your feelings catered to when you're a 25 year old and you're not doing a good job at work and they let you go. Do you know what I mean? Those are the things that are are likely going to happen to you. So you need to be as equipped to deal with the realities of life. And what happens when you get to work where you need a salary to live and your boss is bullying you? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what do you do? Like, do you, you can't call your parents, can't go to HR, HR. If your boss is higher than you, they don't care. Right. You know, like, so you have to be able to teach children how to live in the world that they're going to live in, not the one that you want for them.
2: That's kind of like the the point of uh, Between the World and Me, like that titan in Hesey Coates book. He's like, this is the world as it is, and is. You're gonna be raised for that, not like the world as you hope it will be.
1: Absolutely. I re-listened recently to your Green Room episode, which was like how I was introduced to you, it's weird, because I think that episode was in, like, early 2017. And you guys are talking about uh, extremism in, poli- in, like, the punk scene. And there's a really great line, I think, Chad, you said to Eugene about how um, there's a lot of people now that are trying to operate under the fact that violence doesn't exist, and everyone needs to know that violence exists in this world and will never go away. Yes. Yes. And it that it's a very important thing. Yeah. There's a lot of lessons to be learned. You know, it's Bill Hicks was one of the most important people in my development. However, I think he maybe framed the concept of fear as too much of a negative. Mm. And uh life isn't always just a dream or a ride. And sometimes you, you need to be shook.
2: Yeah, it can work for you. Like Josh Barnett, the UFC fighter and somewhat philosopher, uh, he he was telling this story on his podcast with Lex Friedman the other day, where he was he knew a very high level fighter, I think in Pride or something like that, who was terrified before every fight, but he was like smashing people. And he hated the feeling of being afraid, so he went to basically like a cognitive behavior therapist and a hypnotist or something like that and uh, basically worked out his fears. And the next time he got in the cage, he got fucking smashed. Like there was something about like, and then afterwards he was like, oh, I think that fear like was kind of good for me in some
3: ways. Yeah. Um, that reminds me of a friend a long time ago studied at this uh, very traditional Chinese uh, circus arts school. And the teachers there, would when you screwed up they would hit you with a stick and it wasn't some sort of martial discipline it was basically so that you associate the feeling of fucking up with physical pain because when you're on a high wire if you screw up you could die and you need to primally associate those two things um Hmm. Is
1: a Pavlov's dog
3: thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's hard. You know, it's it's also funny uh, to... I, I have no kids, so this is very distant observation. But when I'm around young, really young kids who are like being assholes, you know, it's really funny. I would never shake a kid, obviously, but it is really interesting to see a body who is... Uh, still learning through their body, and expressing frustration through physicality in a way that adults often don't. You learn to control that, but when you're a kid, you don't control it. So you'll like hit your sister, and it's not it's not the same kind of violence as an adult hitting their sister. You know, not like
2: David Alan Greer with that open hand.
3: <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> uh, Draw a picture. Bringing it back. Bitch. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but um. But what's funny is, uh, you know, physicality is what they know. Physicality is, is in the body.
0: This has recently come online about why dads are incredibly important. The play element of dad is they learn as much as the nurturing element of mom. How to play, how to be physical, when to stop, when to recognize somebody else's pain, when to let go, when to move forward. All those things are incredibly important, and what we're doing is we're saying that masculine element of growing up is not important anymore. You only need love. You don't need anything complicated. You don't need anything. You don't need any discipline. You don't need any pain. You just need to know that we love you and whoever you are is going to be great. And that's dangerous for people as they get older and
1: develop. I, don't know. Well, we're, I think what we're talking about too is. It's just pendulum swing. Both sides have their own unique cost to them that aggravates certain components of the human psyche that's so fucking complex. So it's like finding that balance is really the thing. And I think it's swinging a little bit back. I think it needs to. (laughs) It definitely needs to. It it needs to,
0: absolutely. When my oldest is, she's in dance, and I talk to her about competing in dance, and I always tell her, like, the rabbit is not a virtuous animal. Right? Because the rabbit can do no harm does not make him virtuous. The virtuous animal is the monster that chooses not to do harm. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. you have to be willing to be a monster sometimes because it helps you and it gets you through your competitions, and you have to know how to turn it off.
1: Well, it's the same way a good friend knows how to tell you to shut the fuck up when you need to stop talking. (laughs) Exactly. Like, (laughs) but there
0: cannot, you cannot raise something to not harm you. That's not a good individual, right? That's a flaccid individual. That's an individual that's incapable of doing anything for himself. You know, you have to raise these things that know how to measure when they're in trouble and how to get out of it for themselves.
1: I have been thinking of a way to tie this back (laughs) to Tales from the Hood for some time now. And I think we just move somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um you know one thing we didn't talk about that I was thinking about is how how often in this film there's some sort of thing that happens that demonstrates demonstrates art becoming life or life becoming art like almost literally like the little dolls are on the painting and then they become real life and the the cop gets sucked into the mural and it, like it happens a few times in the film and uh you know the the little boy draws the monster and crumples it up. It, it, it's it's it's. I wonder if it, how intentional that was. It's there's so many references to like the story
0: becoming real or this this piece of imagery becoming real. There's a very voodoo element to it, like voodoo mm-hmm. element to that. Like that's a very fascinating way to look at it, where you can manipulate some kind of reality through the through some additional medium like a doll or a painting or something like that
1: in a uh, hardcore convert you had the pretty stark imagery they went pretty hard on that imagery in the uh hardcore converts a uh, bit where he's kind of getting clockwork oranged and um you know but you, had, you also had the imagery there kind of reflecting back on the person
2: yeah that seems interesting because it's one it's so heavy-handed you know it's like Here's white people that are racist killing black people. And here's black people killing people. What's the difference? But then as a viewer, you're sort of enjoying deaths and then watching these real deaths. Like, so it, it's, it's sort of like a, for a viewer, it's like a little confusing to take it in, you know, cause it's like, oh, are yeah. you, are, are, you know, cause some of the, the filmed shootings in that scene are kind of silly. And, you know, they look, like, goofy. and then But next to these lynching photos, th- th- those are so horrific. It's like, yeah, I, I don't know that it totally works. Like, it didn't work for me.
1: Oh, it definitely doesn't. And then there's, like, the weird kind of sexual angle in there that doesn't have any, like, place, really, <laughs> which is kind of weird. And the mechanism of the chair and, like, why is it spinning? It's a shame because that whole uh, thread... I think visually speaking, has some settings that could have been done really great work, but because of its like narrative purpose, nothing's really done with it. It it was almost like um yeah, Mark Romanek, the director of Closer, it's like Rusty Kandief like stopped over at his house, he's like, Hey, do you have all the props for that you used in Closer? I'm making this this short and then he like used them and didn't know what to do with them. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it definitely had to feel like like they were walking around the back lot at Universal or whatever, and we're like, well, this is still up. You're like, oh, great, you know? <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah.
0: The white supremacist that Crazy K meets, around that time, there was this document. It was like this essay that was written, and it wasn't really clear if it was written by the Klan or if it was written by, like, a black person. And, like, it was saying, yeah, like, it's almost verbatim what the guy was saying. Like, yeah, you know, keep killing yourselves. You're doing our, we don't even have to come to your house and lynch you anymore because you guys are doing it yourselves. Like, Where was it circulating? This is a funny story. So I had, my cousin had given it me a copy of it and I, and, I, and I was trying to find out where I could find it, um, but I just can't string together the proper Google search. But I had, my cousin gave it to me and I brought it to school and I got suspended from school for bringing it. Because the principal was like, this isn't the kind of information we want wow. circulating around the school. Mm. It, but it was this like one-page like essay about how black people should keep killing themselves because they're doing the clan a favor. And huh. he, he was just, that character was just the voice of that essay that was circulating around that time.
1: Interesting. To
2: quote Mark, what else? Would you rather fight a 15-foot slave... Or a hundred tiny doll slaves? And why? <laughs> I mean, this is just hmm. the, you know, large horse, small horses thing just reframed inappropriately for this film.
1: Do I have a baseball bat in either scenario? Well, you can choose. Basically, it's like, do you want to well, fight he had a bunch a shotgun? Of guns? Yeah. Well, there is in uh, Tales
3: from the Hood 2, the first story is actually a doll that is about, 12 feet tall. See, there you go. Right there. It's canon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and actually, the, the main doll from uh, that segment in the first movie is in it.
2: Mm. Yeah. Apparently, some of those dolls are also in Team America World Police.
3: Oh, I love that. Yeah, doll. I read that on the Wikipedia page. <laughs> yeah, it's
2: yeah. pretty solid. But I mean, but seriously, though, like, you, you're you sur- sort I mean, let, let's take the giant out of it since that didn't happen in this film. Like, you were surrounded by, I don't, let's say, 100 doll-sized Uh, creatures that want to kill
1: you? Like, What do you do? What's your your move? You're in a mansion just to give a setting. I'm pretty good with the baseball bat. I would probably go with the little guys. Plus, it doesn't seem like it hurts that much. I don't know. I've always listened to your questions when you ask these things, and I never have a good answer. We never have good answers (laughs) either. We're just always... (laughs) Um,
0: I would probably want the bigger person because I feel like... You could probably get away from the fifteen foot slave. He can't hide. He can't hide. Yeah, yeah. They were yeah. everywhere. They were right. ominous.
2: Yeah, you're driving and away. They, they pop out under the fucking brake of your car, like they. Yeah, run. they
0: were in the limousine. Do you know what I mean? They were tripping people down the stairs, and for the life of me, I couldn't understand. I was like, like, what does it take for him to leave the house? And I understand the premise. Like, like, he's not going to be chased out of the house by a bunch of nigglets. Right, I understand that, <laughs> but like when they are when people are not appearing in the picture, like I just like why wouldn't you leave the house? Like I just don't. Yeah. Get that. Well, or- that's a bit, well, I, I'm sorry.
3: I, the answer is right there because he's white. Yes. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's not what we do. It's also early <laughs> on.
2: It like the the PR guy like is kind of pressing him on the house. He's like, why are you in a fucking plantation, bro? Yeah. Like you're, you know. And he's like, but well, you know because I'm white. Like, you know, but I feel like to me, I maybe just because of my pedigree in these sort of uh, dark arts. Uh, I immediately think, are these picture of Dorian Gray rules? And I go and attack the painting. You know what I mean? Well, he like, hits it
1: with the American flag. Oh, right. Right, it right, right. And it just bleeds. She bleeds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the, the question you're really asking is actually, it's a pretty deep question. It's like, what, what do you want? An enemy that you can see or an enemy that you can't? Right. And, We actually ask this question in a lot of ways in our Judas and the Black Messiah episode where like the waters have become so muddied in so many areas and solving these massive issues that have pervaded all aspects of our society is fucking really difficult to assess and strategize over against. Or, you know, and uh, it's so, yeah, I guess I um, take back my hundred dolls and I go by trying to attack the large one and just bust his kneecaps.
3: It also just occurred to me that with the smaller dolls, you'd never know when they were all gone. Like one big one, if you've dealt with them, it's over. But if it's like a hundred odd dolls, for all you know, two years later there's still like twelve left. Yeah, you got to worry. It's like a whole puppet master
2: franchise
0: after your ass. Yeah. Like yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't fuck up the count. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that thinking like, is racism that serious? Jay, you and I have a conversation about this all the time. That you're gonna kill yourself. You're gonna work to your own detriment. And maybe, and maybe that's another message that that's trying to send. Like, even when it's obvious that you should stop being racist because it's going to save your life. Like,
1: well, does that speak? But but does his motivation speak to his hatred of blacks or his lack of instinct that his privilege took from him? Mm, that's a good question. I don't think racism is entirely well, especially now. I don't think racism is entirely perpetuated by hate. I think it's way more complicated than that. I think it's also like presumption and, um, providing space and represent. It's, it's, it's so many things. It's not just hate. I
0: think largely what we see is people at least over the, and over like was 50% of white people when we talk about this in the 2020 election voted for Trump. Um, and Trump is just an amalgamation of all these different racist people. And we all, we've had the conversation offline about whether or not people voted for Trump only because he was racist. I don't think that's the case. You don't think that's the case. But there's something about white people attracted, th- those who were attracted to him that were willing to go down with the ship for their whiteness.
1: I think it's a lack of identity. I'm someone who's been fortunate to have a strong sense of self and I've never understood anybody having pride in something they didn't have a choice in, which part of that's your heritage. And like, I'm not taking that away from other people. I'm just, and I'm not saying like having pride in it is inherently stupid. I'm just saying that I have never understood it because it's always felt like weirdly desperate. To me, from an out—I guess from like an outsider's perspective on that connection.
2: Well, as a Jewish anarchist. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, well, I'm Joe, curious to hear though, like, 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 boss and I always have this dialogue from a black and white thing. Like, as fellow white men, um, Mark, Mark and and uh, Chad, I'm like, do you guys feel that way as well? Like, what's your take on that?
3: Well, I—I I mean, I'm. This isn't necessarily an answer to that question, but I do think it's interesting that. Uh, it is at the same time as the Trump era is the ascendancy of whiteness as an extension of identity politics. It seems to me like we've had that we've had this thing called identity politics that really sort of really started happening around the late eighties. And it's kind of been coming in different waves ever since. And it really is, um, fairly recently that we have seen what happens when white America adopts the same strategies of analyzing social issues as identity politics had previously used, but applying it to their own ends. I I think the big danger of identity
2: politics is it mires class politics, which I think are I would say are ultimately more important because, you know, like say, say like, you know, white people, it goes the way of England, right? Like you're like, Oh, I'm out of here. Well, there's going to be a United States. So there'll be another like power center. So the, idea, like, so not thinking about like that because you're like overly concerned over like immutable surface characteristics. it goes both ways. I think, I think that like probably one of the reasons why, uh, you know like racist sort of like lost control a little bit was their inflexibility you know what I mean it's like it's just like, oh these all these blacks are terrible we're like well just go talk to a few and you're gonna uh, immediately know that that's fucking stupid you know and, and it's like it's like holding on like trying to hold on to that like higher class just wrecked people and then you just have a bunch of losers everywhere you know what I mean where all they have is my grandpappy was in the fucking Confederacy. Like, I mean, there's people out there like that. Like that's it, you know? And it's a real nine volt kind of way of going through life. And I don't know that you can
0: do anything about it. Or we as the United States haven't shamed enough. like, so, and I think I might've said this before, like I was watching this documentary about Nazis in Germany and they found like a descendant of Adolf Hitler in Germany. And they went to her house, and this woman was so ashamed. She wouldn't open the door. She didn't want to be identified with Nazism. She didn't want to know parts of Nazism, right? Like, this was something that was terrible. She wasn't even alive when Hitler was alive. But she's like, I'm trying to put this behind me. Like, Confederacy, Confederates in the South don't feel that shame. Like, they don't feel like their people did anything wrong. There's a component of that that is accepted. Like when I watched the Capitol riots, they were marching the Confederate flag through the Capitol building, which is like tragically symbolic, like because they couldn't do that in the Civil War.
1: Yeah, um,
2: that's, that's a great, I saw that meme, a meme like that. And it's such a fucking great point.
0: The, I, they don't feel compelled enough. Like I say this to Jay all the time. They don't do weddings at Auschwitz, right? It's not like they're like, oh, you know, <laughs> oh my God, right? Yep. Like, but yep, they do weddings wow. at plantations, yeah. Like these are places where people were tortured and murdered and raped on a regular basis. Have you ever been on a plantation tour? I have the ones in. I did the. I did two <laughs> in New Orleans, out at the Whitney Museum, and there's another one that I did. Were they dressed up when you went or no? No, they didn't do the dress up thing. Um, But the Whitney Museum is actually really good. I highly recommend it. It's really about a slave plantation that's focused on how difficult the lives of slave children were. Um, Mm. um, And then there was another one that was like a Creole plantation. And they were like, how hard, like how the woman who ran the plantation, like started from the bottom. Now she's here, like kind of thing. And I was like, wait, like, and that's, that's the perversion of the history. She was uh, an accessory to rape and murder. Like, this is a a tragedy that, like, we should look at these places with the same gravity that we look at concentration camps or Armenian death camps or anything else that's really sad. But because there's a part of America that wants to embrace it, it's never that way. Yeah, you can't,
3: you can't girl boss that narrative into some sort of positive spin
1: born on third base thinking you hit a triple
0: yeah exactly i mean i I do understand the complexities of being a 19th century woman you know and running your own plantation but uh (laughs) lean in (laughs) (laughs) lean in i think dave chappelle said what did he say about white women shaking his head I think Dave Chappelle said this about white women he said that white women are like the people that robbed the bank but didn't like their cut. Uh, that was Bill Burr well yeah. that was bill Burr yeah that's a that's a good a good way to think about it
1: um yeah i it's it's weird though because I think um the use of shame is it's a difficult uh tool to to use I just wonder, all of this bad faith pride in a really fucked history that we should really all understand is particularly fucked. Does the shame get placed on the personhood of individual people? Or is that more like an addressing of like a curriculum?
0: You know what I mean? Yeah, so the question is, why did Adolf Hitler's daughter or great great niece, I don't want to say daughter or whatever it was, in Germany feels so compelled to disavow to the point where they make Nazism illegal.
1: Would it be because of of history's framing of it, right? Mm-hmm. So
0: So maybe it is curriculum.
1: That that I mean, I don't really know the legislation or I haven't gone to any lengths really to really study how Germany has atoned or continuing, or is continuing to atone uh, for that history, but they make delightful cars.
3: (laughs) Well, no, I mean, this was, this is, uh, you were talking about plantations, but you know, you go to Berlin and you go to a train station and there's a giant plaque stating in no uncertain terms, who and how many people were interned through that train station on the way to which death camps, you know, it, the, the collective shame is not to be forgotten. And I think that that is a really important part of, um, of Germany's legacy is to attempt to undo the worst aspects of its legacy and try to, um, frame it unflinchingly. Um, And I mean, something you said earlier, you guys were talking about earlier reminded me of the way shame kind of can backfire because, ah, fuck. What is that asshole's name who was in Gone Girl, that actor? Ben Affleck? Ben, fuck that guy. Okay. So he was on, what's that show where they
0: do your uh, family tree, your genetic
1: ancestry.com?
0: No, there's, oh, a, there's no, no, it there's was, it was one a one with with Henry Louis Gates on PBS. Yes. Yes, that show.
3: So he was on that show and they discovered that his ancestors owned slaves. And he went after them to not put it in the show or to not allow that show to be broadcast. And that is the wrong kind of fucking shame. It's like, so weird. <laughs> fuck that guy. I mean, it's like, do you believe in blood guilt? <sighs>
2: you know, like the only thing I care about my ancestors is if if they are like predisposed to type two diabetes.
1: Yeah, like, totally. You know, like, that, yeah. I could yeah.
3: about.
0: Yeah, I think I think though Ben Affleck is from Boston. Yeah. <laughs> See, there you <he laughs> go. No, and Boston oh, has a God. very complicated history of race. Not that the rest of the country doesn't. <laughs> But right, right. Boston is one of those places, like, they like to pretend like it was always wonderful here. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and, and then there's, and, and the Bostonian complexity about race is just really interesting because it is a pretty racist place. Oh, it was, I'll say that. I don't think it's that way anymore. But it's also a place where people have, like, mm-hmm. the crazy thing about Boston, and I'm going on a tangent here. But Martin Luther King got his PhD in Boston, and Malcolm X started his first mosque in Boston. Right? Like, there's, it's this really strange place of black excellence and racism kind of converging. W.E.B. Du Bois is from Massachusetts. He's the first black to get his... He's the second black to get his PhD from Harvard. Like, it's this really strange, weird place. You know what I mean? So... Well, there's a a
1: hypocrisy in Ben Affleck in that moment that kind of exposes like the such like sanctimonious hubris that is Hollywood, which is maybe the most representative, culturally speaking, of the liberal community. Mm, So I feel like when they hear this you know, this virtue signaling from that, like when right-wing people hear this virtue signaling, like, fuck you, hypocrite. And they just, it 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 just like goats them into being more extreme, like, like uh, you know, operating in more extreme douchebag shenanigans. It's like, it's like, I'm not excusing that, you know, normally where, like, where Boston and our, our, our conversation often revolves around is, like what's you know the right strategy, and I think it's like kind of like what you know Mark you were saying to Germany's legacy. It's it's really about like a, a cultural curriculum, or, mm-hmm. or you know, which obviously starts in public schools. It starts by taking these fucking statues down. There's great strides. It's just like, but I think as a as a people too. And in order to maintain a healthy perspective on everything we're talking about, it you simultaneously also have to learn how to denoise life with like all this shit happening in social media and all and, and Lady Gaga's dogs and all this stuff. Yeah. It's, it's difficult. Mm. Yeah, it, I feel like it just you gotta have some
2: I think to me the high mark of like when the most people of the most races got along was during the second season of the Chappelle show. Like like that time. <laughs> I, I remember distinctly like thinking like, man, things are going pretty cool, man. This is awesome. You know, like and just in general, uh, maybe I was lulled into sleep by the Obama era or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, it but I, you know like I'm being a little bit glib about that. But I think like you got to like, I think it's, it's very interpersonal, you know, make friends with people who aren't like you, like show up when they need you, like just stuff like that, like that. I mean, I, I've been super lucky to just by being poor and forced into the service industry really like to know a bunch of different kinds of people and i i think there's something really valuable to that i, I remember yeah. i had this conversation when i was working in a coffee shop this like like fresh out of boot camp marine corps dude like came in and you know there would be these guys that would, it would almost it was almost like san diego like they would come from bell chase to like new orleans and just hang out he's like this guy he he had this he's he was really thick southern accent like texas or something he's like hey man He's like, you know, it was like, you know what I just found out? It's like, I like black people. And then he's like, I didn't know any until I went into the <laughs> Marine Corps. Like, I just remember him like just talking like in amazement that like, like, and there's just people out there who just don't know. You know what I mean? Like they have, just need to get out and see stuff.
1: Have you seen that video of that man in like a truck that goes going the to the black
0: barbecue? It's
1: such an endearing video. It it's, is. Have you seen that, Chad? Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, it kind of reminds me of what you're saying, yeah.
0: One of the things that I realized is that the flame throwing isn't productive. I don't like the, like, I think it's easy. This is a conversation that we had before, Jay. I think it's easy to call somebody a Nazi and say how bad they are. But I don't think that you really win any cool points by pointing out that Nazism is bad. Do you know what I mean? especially well at least now. yeah, I, I mean <laughs> like I think yeah I want to hear the story about the person that engaged the Nazi. Do you know what I mean? Like that really spoke yeah. to the Nazi and what they were able to discern, what they were able to understand. And to me that's more compelling than just fuck Nazis because that's easy. Well again,
3: I think that comes back to uh, it's similar to when we were talking about violence. Uh, you know, you pretend the world is not violent at your own peril. Mm. Um, you pre- You pretend the world doesn't have a lot of different amazing people in it at your own peril. Um, doing the hard work of engaging with what's difficult in the world is actually the thing that's going to make it better. Not pretending that if you plug your ears and uh, tweet enough vitriol that somehow it's going to correct itself on for you.
1: Yeah,
0: that's amazing. I, I That's think, not work. no <laughs>
1: all right. I think uh, I think we did it. All right, all right, thanks as always. Is there anything that you guys have going on that you would like to plug? Next
3: couple episodes, I think we're actually doing Creep show inspired by this episode. and then uh, my bandmate Andy Connors will be on, and we will be discussing the ultra micro subgenre of music called Dungeon Synth. I'm really excited about that. Very nice. It's like as if Wesley Willis's keyboard had made uh,
1: Dungeons and Dragons music. That's totally what it all like, sounds like to me. That's a good assessment. That is a good assessment. Kurt Cobain is a rock and roll singer. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for having us on guys. I really appreciate Oh my it.
0: God. It's a yeah, pleasure. Yeah, this is a great time. Good time. Again, drop us a line at NJ at racetraderpodcast.com. Check the spelling in the show notes. And if you feel so inclined, subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast.
1: All right, folks. Knee deep in the shit. Stay curious. Love you, Tyo.